Welcome to the One O'ahu Podcast. I'm Brandi Higa, and today is Thursday, July 6, 2023. And joining us this week is the Director of the Department of Emergency Management, Hiro Toya. Hiro, thanks so much for making some time for us. Brandi, I'm a fan of the show. Thanks so much for having me. <laughs> you know, Hiro, your department is one that I think people get kind of confused with when they hear emergency, right? They think of maybe like the ambulance or, or those type of first responders. But for those that aren't familiar, what is it that your department does? Yeah, so we're the Department of Emergency Management, and our role is to prepare for and respond to large-scale emergencies. And that means working with the whole of government, not only within the city and county of Honolulu, uh, but with the state of Hawaii, the federal government, as well as uh, nonprofit and private sector partners. So we look at uh, preparing for things like tsunamis and hurricanes and make sure that we have a coordinated response plan. And how many make up your department? How many people do you oversee? So we have uh, 16 full-time employees for our department. And we also have a volunteer corps that has about uh, 100 active volunteers. Wow. Is, it, is that enough, though, 16 full-time? It really isn't. Yeah. It really isn't. But um, how we work is we actually really leverage a lot of relationships. So, um, again, not only within the city government, but with, uh, with nonprofit partners. Mm-hmm. So, for instance, um, we formalized some of these uh, agreements with uh, a couple of nonprofits recently. Um, one of them is uh, Partners in Care, and uh, they're a network of uh, social service uh, providers for largely focusing on the homeless population. So when we think about large-scale emergencies, uh, the whole community is impacted. So uh, we look to leverage other potential resources to take care of the whole community. So another relationship we have is with the Hawaii Food Bank. Mm. Um, so thinking about how the community is going to eat after a large-scale emergency, um, we definitely need a lot of partners, uh, not only in the nonprofit sector, but private sector as well, to uh, take care of our population here. We thought it was timely to have you on right now because we are in hurricane season and, you know, the, the forecast did come out a little busier than usual, but that's kind of difficult to, to deal with, right? Because we've dodged so many bullets that the ask of the community, you know, to kind of stay prepared, be prepared is, is tough year after year. It is, right? And, uh, you know, we Noah comes out with this season outlook every every uh Every May, you know, shortly before the hurricane season starts on June 1st. And by the way, it goes through uh, end of November, November 30th. And their prediction this year was a 50% chance of above normal hurricane season. So a usual normal hurricane season has uh, about four to five tropical cyclones in our central Pacific waters. And um, this year, what they cited was El Nino being a key factor in how busy this hurricane season was going to be. So uh, El Nino essentially means uh, an area of the uh, equatorial eastern Pacific. Uh, the sea surface temperatures there are warmer than the average. So warmer sea surface and, and combined with other factors leads to a little bit busier hurricane season for us. But really what matters for us is that we're always prepared because all it takes is one storm, right? Um, so if you recall, back in uh, 2015, we had an extremely busy hurricane season. I think we had 16 named storms in the Central Pacific, but none of them came anywhere near us, so mm-hmm. there was no impact to us. Um, but uh, look back at 2018, um, that's the year that we had Hurricane Lane and Hurricane Olivia. That season we had six storms, but two of those storms had some impacts to us, right? Um, and Hurricane Lane, I think a lot of folks might remember that as the storm that didn't really impact us, but mm-hmm. that's that's not true. Um, it actually uh, set a record for the Big Island uh, in terms of total rainfall. And so this was a, actually a re- record for the state in terms of total rainfall from a hurricane. And uh, it's only second to Hurricane Harvey in terms of total rainfall for hurricanes in the U.S. So it was a significant event. 
Uh, and also there was a, a pretty devastating fire uh, that was out in West Maui from Hurricane Lane. And of course, Hurricane Olivia dumped a lot of rain on us, and there were some concerns about some of our uh, reservoirs and dams overtopping. So, you know, it's really all it takes is one storm. Um, you know, one more example, you know, uh, 2020, uh, right towards the beginning of the COVID pandemic, that was a La Nina year, and it was, it was a quiet hurricane season. We only had two storms, but we had Hurricane Douglas come very, very close to us. And, you know, that was a, that was a, that was a really tough response, you know, because we had COVID going on at the same time. Um, so, again, really, it doesn't matter as much what the season outlook is. It's all it takes is one storm, so we always want to be prepared. And what does that look like once we do have a named storm? What does that look like for you and your department operationally, say, days out, hours out, and then when it, it does hit? Yeah, so that's a good question. So right now we're sitting in the uh, the city's emergency operations center as we record this. So um, this essentially becomes the sort of the nerve center for the city for our hurricane response. So once a storm enters the central Pacific area, which is um, basically once a storm crosses the 140 west uh, line, um, then what the key thing that happens is the central Pacific Hurricane Center, uh, and that's located in Manoa, uh, takes over the forecasting responsibilities from the National Hurricane Center in Miami. So it really becomes kind of a, a local responsibility mm -hmm. and a heightened level of threat for our community here. And so what happens for us is uh, we uh, would start having uh, regular video teleconferences with the state uh, and the National Weather Service and the Central Pacific Hurricane Center, uh, looking at the forecast and the potential impacts and really starting our preparedness actions. And, and generally that's uh, about five days out from uh, potential impact to the state of Hawaii. So um, we have our procedures down to you know each day, uh, five days out, four days out, three days out. Um, and then we start getting a little bit more granular and, and, and sort of a 12 hour increments as the storm approaches. So, um, so the way the uh, N Central Pacific Hurricane Center and the National Hurricane Center issue kind of alerts for hurricanes is when a storm is uh, 48 hours out with potentials to impact for an area, then they would issue a hurricane watch. Mm -hmm. uh, and 36 hours out with uh, some likelihood of a storm impacting us, they would issue a hurricane warning. And so as the storm approaches, then we would also progressively message differently to the public um, with sort of a little bit more forceful language about what, what needs to happen. Um, and as the storm gets a little bit closer, um, we may be opening some evacuation shelters or what we now call hurricane refuge areas uh, to provide some uh, uh, protection for the public, um, for those who aren't gonna be safe in their homes. And so uh, eventually as the storm impact starts to materialize, um, it becomes unsafe uh, for our, even for our first responders to be out there, right? right? Um, so we may actually be just shutting down a large part of uh, not only just you know, the, the routine city operations, but some of the emergency operations will need to shut down. And so everybody's gonna be hunkered down. Um, and then once the storm passes and the impacts are no longer with us, then um, we'll begin our assessment process and our response afterwards. Uh, as we're getting ready for say a storm or any type of emergency really, um, the message from your department is always to have your disaster kit, right? 14 days. Why is it 14 days and what's your message to folks as they're getting that ready? Yeah, so, so, you know, I think it's worth setting some context for that. And so the way our society works here um, largely operate on a just-in-time economy, right? Mm -hmm. And the vast majority of the commodities that we consume comes in by sea through the port of Honolulu. And so what we're concerned with is any potential disruption to that supply chain 
and we've experienced some of this to, uh, during COVID, right? You know, mm -hmm. we, uh, just supply chain issues um, and uh, shortage on toilet paper and things like that. And that was happening without any actual physical damage to our infrastructure, mm -hmm. right? Um, so what we are concerned with hurricanes is that um, there's potential for actual physical damage to the port of Honolulu where everything comes into the state and it goes from there by ground transportation to wherever they need to go within the island of Oahu. And so that could be to wholesalers or retailers. And there's very little warehousing that gets done here. Mm -hmm. And most of the stuff just goes directly off the ships and into the shelves. And so with a storm approaching, then at one point, it is going to become unsafe for the ships to be operating and it's going to be unsafe for the ports to operate. So even before the storm hits us, the ports could shut down to go into sort of protection mode, right? Now, if the storm were to actually impact us, then there's potential for damage to the infrastructure at the port and also potential for a significant amount of debris to get stuck in the channels where the ships need to navigate. And so it really could take a week or longer for the port to actually become more operational again, right? And so some folks might be thinking, well, you know, we have airports, so stuff could come in by air. But, you know, even if we're lucky enough to have those airports operating after a large-scale event, there just simply isn't enough air capacity for us to be able to support the 1.5, 1.6 million de facto population that we're going to have here mm -hmm. with residents and visitors combined for, for us to be able to sustain that kind of population, right? Now, that's on the side of getting stuff onto the island. Now, let's talk about getting stuff around the island mm -hmm. once it's here, right? So, again, if we're talking about hurricanes, uh, there's potential for a significant amount of debris to be out on the roads. And it's going to take us time to clear those roads and open up that transportation network again, mm -hmm. right? And so, really, it's going to take some time for our supply chain to resume. And that's the reason why we keep saying everybody needs to be prepared for 14 days. Now, we do understand that's tough, um, not only in terms of just, you know, the, the logistics of storing that much stuff, but, you know, we're talking about, you know, in the state of Hawaii, 12% of the population lives under the federal poverty line and 30% are in a category what's that w that's called ALICE, right? So asset limited, income constrained and employed. And so, you know, we got almost half the population in some kind of financial hardship. And we're mm -hmm. asking those folks, you know, they might be worried about their next meal and we're asking them to prepare. And I know that's a tough sell, but we really urge anybody who can to prepare for themselves because there just simply won't be enough capacity from the government side to support the entire population. And we really want to be able to focus on those that really need help, right? So if you are able to help yourself ahead of the storm and prepare yourself, then please do that. Um, so really what that entails is, you know, making a plan, uh, building a kit, and staying informed. So that's kind of our mantra, right? And so making a plan means first figuring out what are the hazards that can affect you at the place that you live, where you work, or mm -hmm. maybe, you know, where you play, maybe where you spend significant amounts of time. Mm -hmm. And really understanding, you know, are, are you in a, a flood-prone area? Are you in a tsunami evacuation zone? Um, what kind of home do you live in? You know, or is your home going to be able to sustain yeah. uh, and, and uh, stay standing after a, a storm? And then looking at what your individual needs are, right? You know, everybody has unique needs. Um, you know, uh, maybe you have some kind of disability or, you know, maybe you have some kind of uh, what we call access or functional needs. Um, are you on any kind of medication? Do you have pets? Or are you looking after somebody else? Mm -hmm. So there's all sorts of situations, individual circumstances that we need to account for. 
And so just really evaluating um, what it is that can impact you and what your own unique needs are. And I think this is where, you know, we really want folks to get together with their family or friends and kind of talk, talk this through and do this together, mm -hmm. you know, rather than trying to do this by yourself. And so, you know, once you figure out largely what you might do in each of these circumstances and like, you know, if you decide that you need to evacuate for any of these hazards, then you should have an evacuation plan of where you're going to go. Um, I mentioned hurricane shelters earlier, you know, as that, that's one of the things that we're going to be doing during a hurricane response. You know, while that is one option, um, it's really not a great option for a lot of folks. Um, we have very limited space and uh, we don't really provide much in terms of creature comforts or any kind of supplies at these locations. You know, it's basically a, a safe place to hunker down during the storm. So if your plans are to evacuate, then really we encourage folks to look at what other evacuation options they might have. Can you, know, can you go to a friend or a family's home? Are there other places you can go to evacuate? And as a last resort, if you're going to go to one of these public hurricane shelters, then uh, think about the logistics and what you might need to bring uh, to be prepared for that scenario. So, so that's that. That's that. Make a plan part, and you know, you started off. You know, we started off this conversation with the the building a kit part, right? Mm -hmm. So, that kit really should be based on what your unique needs are going to be, based on what your plans are. Um, the first thing is water. Um, yeah. You, yeah. So, in addition to the transportation infrastructure becoming compromised, you know, our water distribution system can also become affected mm -hmm. too, right? Um, so that could be as a result of physical damage to the system. Um, you know, we have uh, fire hydrants that are exposed that are part of the water distribution system. So that could uh, lead to damage to the system, or it could also be based on um, power outages. So if we don't have power, then we don't have water. And you know, actually, uh, Ernie Lau and the Board of Water Supply have done a, a tremendous job in terms of investing into the resilience of their system. And they've invested into uh, the generators to, to be able to power their pump stations. But you know, they're, they're not going to have 100% reach. So mm -hmm. um, really, we urge everybody to have 14 days of water stored. And so mm -hmm. that's one gallon of water per person per day. Um, buying that much bottled water can yeah. be kind of expensive. Right. So um, there are different ways to do this, right? So uh, we can look at um, buying uh, reusable containers, um, just specifically designed for water storage. And uh, you want to make sure you clean those out and add tap water and add a little bit of bleach. Um, again, BWS has some really good guidelines on this mm -hmm. online that folks can look up. And that makes it safe to store that water for, for a long period of time, you know, six months, a year. Um, you probably want to check up on your water once a year as uh, each hurricane season approaches. Or, you know, alternatively, if you just really don't have that much space, um, this is not the, the best option, but you can also buy sort of these just-in-time water storage options. Right. So there's these, you know, I think they're called like water bobs or something. And so what you do is you uh, put this sort of plastic bag with a spigot in your mm -hmm. bathtub, and you can fill this thing up as the storm's approaching. But, you know, there are also emergencies that can happen without any notice. So, you know, it's, it's a good idea to have some water in storage on hand. So we recommend that um, having one gallon per person per day for 14 days. Try to do this, you know, you don't have to do this all at once, right? Try to do a little bit at a time and build this up over time. And uh, do as much as you can. And again, just whoever can, you know, those who can, they really should be taking it upon themselves to prepare as much as possible. So there's, of course, other supplies that you're going to need. You know, if you're on regular medication, then making sure that you always have enough on hand mm -hmm. uh, in case of emergency. Um, other essential items include, you know, having a battery-operated radio. Uh, so we'll talk about staying informed in a little bit here. Yeah. Um, but, you know, having flashlights. Um, masks are good, uh, not only in terms of communicable diseases, but, you know, like 
after a disaster. There might be a lot of dust in mm-hmm. the air and, you know, just uh, being able to uh, breathe safely outside, um, basic toiletries and basic hygiene items, things like that. So, you know, one, one thing I want to add to this is sometimes you do have to bug out in case of an emergency, right? You mm-hmm. know, 14 days of stuff uh, is is quite cumbersome, you know, not only like volume wise and weight wise, it's going to be really heavy to carry. So it's probably not realistic, let's say for a family of four to carry yeah. out, you know, 14 gallons of water times mm-hmm. four, right? Um, so we really encourage folks to have kind of a, a, a separate go bag that has basically all of your s- stuff minus your food and water, right? You okay. can probably fit that into a, a backpack mm-hmm. or, you know, like a s- small carry-on suitcase. And then just have a small quantity of water and food that you put into that that you can evacuate with. And so that's sort of a subset of your 14-day supply. So instead of establishing a 14-day supply with everything and then a separate three-day, you know, just looking at looking at that um, go kit as a subset of mm-hmm. your 14-day supplies, right? So that makes it a little bit more manageable, and it also makes it so that you know th- there's a, a way for you to just leave your home in a hurry if you need to with all your essential items. Mm-hmm. And going and going back to that plan, what's the best way for folks to to stay informed and and know you know like you said, border water, ha- you know, has some resources for folks. I know fire department has some resources for folks, HECO as well. Um, but, but what's the best way, you know, is there one central, should they follow you guys on Twitter or, you know, what's the best way for people to stay informed? So we have a lot of, uh, resources on our website. Mm-hmm. Um, that's honolulu.gov slash DEM. And, uh, we actually link to many of those partners as well. So our, our website is a good place to start, um, in terms of staying informed, during blue sky days, you know, as you're preparing, mm-hmm. you know, what are the things that you might need to consider? So definitely encourage folks to visit our website, honolulu.gov slash DEM. Um, but you also need to stay informed during an emergency right. as well, right? And so the key thing is pay attention to local news, and uh, that's TV and radio, uh, because they're really looking at the, the local viewers and listeners um, that's their target audience. And, you know, the national news might have a different angle in terms of who their target audience is. Mm-hmm. And so just really making sure to listen to that credible local news stations. And they all do a really fantastic job in covering emergencies. So um, we look at the media as our partners, and they've been um, they've been great to work with here. So, um, But one of the most resilient forms of broadcasting is AM, FM radio. Mm-hmm. So we do really encourage folks to have that as a part of their emergency kits and you know, just have, have batteries, right, and store those separately. You know, sometimes the batteries acid leaks and kind of ruins your radio and stuff, right? So have, have a battery-operated radio uh, and, and, of course, the batteries that you need for that uh, as part of your kit. And, of course, you know, social media is another way in which we're communicating these days. So just follow the official social media accounts for the city and, and, and for DEM. And uh, we'll do the best we can to keep the, the public informed. Back in December, you got to unveil and announce our Tsunami Sign Project. For those who maybe don't remember or, or maybe missed it on the news, um, what is that project and, and what's the latest there? Have we expanded to other locations across Oahu? Yeah, so we're really excited about this. This is a long time coming. And yeah. uh, I, I know that um, the, the tsunami hazard is a concern uh, not only to us and emergency managers, but uh, many members of our community. You know, it's like we're really a coastal community, mm-hmm. right? So there's significant swaths of our island that um, is, is subject to the tsunami hazard. So a um, uh, long time in the making, but um, we were able to get some federal funds to support the installation of uh, signs. Uh, w- one set of signs is in our beach parks 
bringing awareness to the fact that there is a potential for tsunami hazard in those areas. Mm -hmm. uh, so we have two different sets of signs. The signs out in the country, um, they really just tell you, hey, this is a tsunami hazard area in case of a tsunami warning, uh, go inland and into higher ground. And uh, there's also a QR code um, that links to our tsunami evacuation zone maps. So as people are using the beach parks, you know, if they, uh, if they become curious about, hey, like, I'm not really sure where the tsunami evacuation zones are, they can easily access the maps uh, uh, using the QR code at, on those signs. Now, the si signs in the town areas where we have high-rise buildings, uh, th those folks actually have, on the one hand, additional traffic congestion concerns, right. but we also have the option of evacuating vertically in high-rise buildings in the town area. So if you're in town, uh, you can evacuate to above the fourth floor or higher in a, a building 10 story or taller. Um, so if you're in Waikiki, you know, there's tons of buildings that meet that criteria. Just got to get to the fourth floor and up. Same thing in downtown. And so the signs uh, in the town areas actually have that option uh, marked on the sign as well. So in, in case of a tsunami warning, go inland uh, to higher ground or uh, evacuate to a high-rise building. And so we're really excited about them, bringing more awareness to the tsunami hazard to our community. And the, uh, so that's the first, kind of the first phase of this. And we're pretty much nearing completion of the installation of the tsunami sign. So this is really thanks to um, uh, collaboration with uh, the city's Department of Parks and Recreation and also with uh, the state's Department of Land and Natural Resources uh, Parks Division. So uh, they've been really great partners. Um, they've allowed us to install signs in their parks. And uh, what we're going to be doing next is um, installing tsunami hazard area signs along our roadways. And so as you're driving, um, you'll, ha you'll start to see signs that indicate when you're entering into a tsunami hazard area and uh, when you're leaving it's the tsunami hazard area. So um, one thing that um, we're going to be discussing in more detail is the fact that um, Oahu has two tsunami evacuation zones. So one is uh, what we call the tsunami evacuation zone, or you might hear us refer to it as the standard tsunami evacuation zones. And so these are based on uh, fairly recent historical tsunami events and the inundation that they caused. And uh, you know we add some uh, safety factors to this to create the evacuation zones based on that. Um, the other zone is called the extreme tsunami evacuation zone. And uh, after the, um, the Tohoku earthquake and tsunami in Japan, uh, which sort of exceeded the expectation of the emergency management communities mm -hmm. there. There was some work done uh, by some uh, geophysicists at uh, the University of Hawaii, and uh, they identified the potential for a much stronger earthquake occurring in the Aleutian Islands off of Alaska that has the potential to create more significant inundation than any of the more recent historical events that we've seen. So um, while this is very low probability. Um, it is something that's uh, a potential for our community. So we established this secondary extreme tsunami evacuation zone. Um, now, the differences between these zones are pretty significant in terms of the affected population. And so the standard tsunami evacuation zone has about 80,000 daytime residents, uh, whereas the extreme tsunami evacuation zone has about 200,000 daytime residents. And so there's implications to that, right? right. So if we're trying to evacuate the population, uh, there is a significant consequence to over-evacuating. So if people are unnecessarily evacuating, then what they're doing is actually just backing up the traffic to those people that actually need to evacuate. And uh, that can create some significant problems for us. So um, what we're trying to do is to bring awareness to those two different zones and ensuring that um, there's public understanding between what those two zones are and when you might need to evacuate. And so 
you'll see on the roadway signs um, kind of a slogan that we put on there. It says, know your zones. So it's plural to uh, promote the, uh, the, uh, the further understanding that there are multiple tsunami evacuation zones in our community. And so the secondary, the extreme zones, right? So that's probably a little higher, a little inland, because it does affect more of the population. Um, so signs for those will be going up. And, you know, what is your message to folks? Because if there is a siren blaring, I'm probably going to try to get to higher ground, even if I'm in the extreme zone and I'm not affected just yet, right? So how do you how do you kind of temper that with folks when, when, you know, you say you do hear a siren blare that, you know, you're you're okay? Yeah, and that's that's difficult even in the absence of those signs, right? Because I think yeah. every time there's a tsunami evacuation, there's a, 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 a probably not an insignificant portion of the population that you know believe they might need to go up to. Like, I mean, better safe than look- sorry, right? Yeah, they might even go up to the poly lookout, right. thinking that you know the um, that uh, that's where the impacts are going to be. But you know, I think this that's why this really is about public education and awareness about the zones, and you know, placing these uh, signs at the beach parks too, um, to bring more awareness to the fact that we have these two separate zones. So I think this is um, essentially gonna be an, uh, this is an issue statewide, mm-hmm. um, each each of the four counties. Uh, I don't think Big Island's published their extreme tsunami evacuation zone maps yet, but each of the counties in the state have the, the standard tsunami evacuation mm-hmm. zone and the extreme zone. So we're gonna have to continue to work with all of our partners to do um, this tsunami education and awareness. Um, so every April in the state of Hawaii is uh, Tsunami Awareness Month. So you know we we do uh, s- uh, some public information and education campaign every year. So you know we'll, we'll continue to do that. But uh, uh, bringing more awareness to the community in terms of these zones through these signs, you know, we're we're hoping that would bring uh, just greater clarity to to the fact that we have these two different zones. And once the sirens do go off, about how much time do you think people would have? So this really depends. So yeah. the, w- the the siren actually means, and, and you know, by the way, every first uh, working day of the month, uh, we have the uh, statewide right, it went siren off this test. Week. Yeah. yeah. Um, and so what the sirens actually mean is to to pay attention and stay tuned and turn on local news, right? So the sirens are always going to be accompanied by. Uh, some kind of emergency alert message, you know, the crawler that goes mm-hmm, across the TV mm-hmm. or an announcement that goes over the radio. And so that'll give uh, more information about what the emergency is. Because, you know, there's only so much information we can convey through a siren tone, right? You know, we get everybody's attention. So we get them to go pay attention to um, to the uh, official sources of information. And so your question about how much time people have well, it really depends on where that earthquake originates from. Mm-hmm. So if you're looking at an event that's happened in Alaska, we're looking at four and a half to five hours. Um, if you're looking at Japan, you know, it's about eight hours for the waves to arrive. Um, Chile, it could be as much as 16 hours mm-hmm. for uh, tsunami, the first tsunami wave to arrive. Um, there is some possibility of a local tsunami uh, generated by an earthquake off the Big Island, and that doesn't really leave us with much time. Um, so that could be anywhere from 20 to 30 minutes until the waves arrive here. So um, our alert and warning systems have improved substantially over the course of the decades. You know, we've had fatalities from tsunamis here uh, in the past, but um, we now have the Pacific Tsunami Warning Center uh, located um, on Ford Island here, and uh, their basically their job is to keep us informed about tsunami threats. 
And so they'll communicate with us pretty much immediately when the, whenever there is a tsunami threat to our community. And uh, we mentioned the siren system. So the state of Hawaii actually has the largest outdoor siren network in the country. Um, it's, it's pretty unique in terms of um, how, much, how many sirens they've been able to install uh, in the state. It is a challenge to keep them running. Um, our environment's not very forgiving. There's a lot of salt in the air mm -hmm. and you know, there's uh, just the warmth with all the, uh, the creatures that come with that, you know, ants and geckos and things that can potentially short out some of the circuits. But you know, they, they do a really good job maintaining these. Um, in addition to that, we fairly recently, within the last uh, decade or so, started getting these uh, wireless emergency alerts on your phone, mm -hmm. right? So this is the one that you can't turn off. You right, know, the the right. tone goes off. You, know, you might be in the middle of eating dinner and mm -hmm. you thought you silenced your phone, but there's a flood warning in the area, so the, your phone's going off. So that would be another means of alerting the public when there's a, a a, uh, a tsunami event happening. So, you know, multiple redundancy and different ways of communicating with the public, uh, of which the siren system is one of the components. It's hard to hear the word siren without thinking about our false missile alert that we had a few years ago. Uh, where were you when that happened and what was that experience like for you? Yeah, so January 13th, 2018, yes. right? So that was a that was a really tough year for us. So, you know, we started the year off with the, uh, the, the false missile alert. Um, and then in April, we had the uh, national record-setting rains in Kauai and uh, some significant floods on East Oahu here. Uh, and then in May, the lava flow started on the Big Island. And then in August was Hurricane Lane and October was Hurricane Olivia. So it was a pretty tough year for us. But um, for, for me personally, uh, that morning I was, uh, I was at home um, just relaxing and uh, got the alert and looked at my phone and said, oh, you got to be kidding me. But, <laughs> Um, but we were able to find out fairly quickly through um, uh, Hyema's state warning point mm -hmm. that it was indeed a mistake. Mm -hmm. You know, we uh, basically wanted Hyema to take care of it. We mm -hmm. are, I, I made some assumptions about what was going to happen and, and kind of the time frame. And uh, it did take them longer than uh, we would have hoped for uh, to sort of retract the, uh, the missile or mm -hmm. using the same means. But, you know, in the meantime, we were basically preparing to issue some alerts through our system, HNL Info, mm -hmm. um, which we, we eventually did. Uh, but, you know, in, in my view, the best way to retract an alert was for the original sender to s you send it, send the retraction using the same method as the original method, right? And so we were um, kind of gave Haima some space to do that. And, and meanwhile, of course, the um, HPD was getting t tons and tons of 911 calls, and they, they right. also recognized it was a false alert. And so they were responding to those 911 calls as much as they could. And they also sent officers out into the field to do some uh, PA announcements um, to alert the public that, hey, this is a false alert. And so uh, I believe it took 38 minutes for the, the retraction message to go out. And, you know, it was really, um, you know, I don't think unfortunate really covers it, but, you know, it, it, it was uh, just damaging in terms of credibility to the emergency alert system and to emergency management in general. So. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's incumbent on us to continue the work and continue to develop partnership and earn the trust back from the public, right? So that was in 2018. Mm -hmm. How long have you been with the city? So I joined the city in um, August of 2011, and my first job was the, uh, the training and exercise officer for the department. And so that means uh, working with all the departments to do the, the training necessary to be able to address emergencies. Um, and also doing drills and things like that to make sure we're, our, our capabilities are there. And so, you know, it's a really um, 
it's a really great job for me um, in terms of just getting exposure to all sorts of different areas. You know, I wasn't necessarily the subject matter expert in any of those things, but I got a lot of exposure and got to meet a lot of people. And that's one of the more interesting things about this job is just the, the wide variety of folks that we get to work with. And the wide variety of things you need to be prepared for. It's almost like you can't be a jack of all trades. You have to be a master of all trades because it's, it's, you know, it's lives we're dealing with here. What was it, I guess, like that prepared you for this job? Where were you before this? How did, how did this Hero Toya come to be? Yeah, so I um, got interest in sort of public service and, you know, emergency management when I was in college. And I think like a lot of young people, like I really didn't know what I wanted to do. Um, and I was really searching for meaning. And uh, what I thought I wanted to do, and so I, I majored in industrial and systems engineering in college. And uh, I thought I wanted to apply that to the healthcare setting. And so I actually went to technical college at the same time I was finishing my undergrad to, to become an emergency medical technician. I wanted to have some hands-on experience in, in healthcare, right? Mm -hmm. So that was the most interesting and um, kind of approachable thing that I could do to get hands-on experience. So I actually worked as a, a emergency medical technician in the 911 system in Atlanta for a short period of time after college. Um, but you know, around the same time, um, I saw the uh, the impacts from the Indian Ocean tsunami, and uh, that was where I said, you know what, like, I, it seems like there's a lot of need and disaster response, and that seems really interesting. So um, I decided to um, go to graduate school in public health. And so I moved to the city of New Orleans in August of 2005, um, literally one week before Hurricane Katrina hit. Oh, wow. So I moved there from Atlanta, and uh, I thought it would be just, um, you know, lose power for a few days, and uh, it'll be back to normal soon. So why don't I go see a different city in the meantime, right? And so I, I evacuated to Houston um, and uh, quickly realized that I wasn't going back to the city of New Orleans right. anytime soon. And, you know, I hadn't even started school yet at that mm -hmm. point, right? So... Um, so I decided to volunteer at uh, uh, the Astrodome. Uh, that was one of the mega mm -hmm. shelters that Houston had set up for the Katrina evacuees from New Orleans. And so I, I uh, got to um, spend some time there and um, linked up with the, the University of Texas School of Public Health and did some uh, helped with some health assessments there. And so just really going around talking to the evacuees about you know what what kind of um, health effects they were experiencing, you know if they were having any kind of health issues, and. Um, I just found that to be a really um, kind of a interesting and like rewarding time uh, to be able to try to be there for somebody when they're having pretty much the worst day of their lives, right? And uh, after um, having spent three weeks in Houston, um, I was in the city of Baton Rouge for a little bit back in Louisiana, and about six weeks later, I was back in New Orleans. And so that was really supposed to be my first semester, fall semester of graduate school. So instead of going to school, um, I decided to do volunteer work in the city of New Orleans. And uh, my interest was initially doing kind of international disaster response, but realized that there's a lot of work that can be done domestically. So it just really shifted my whole life, you know. So Hurricane Katrina was really what um, kind of pushed me towards this job. And so I think um, really uh, just having taken an interest and having had some firsthand experience with a disaster and you know having had that exposure I think really helped me prepare for this job. That's really interesting I didn't know that about you but do you think that that health background 
uh, played a role in your response and your leadership once the pandemic hit? Yeah, I think it did to a lot of extent, you know, and uh, from Louisiana, I um, moved to Hawaii to actually take a job with the uh, Department of Health. And my job there as, was as the, uh, the strategic national stockpile coordinator for the state of Hawaii. And uh, that meant uh, working with the federal government and the stockpiles that they keep across the country that they would send in event of an emergency. And uh, the states would be responsible for receiving those and distributing those uh, resources accordingly. So some of that happened during the pandemic. Um, but even prior to that, you know, after I started my job at DOH, uh, if you recall, there was a, another pandemic um, that happened in 2009. That was the H1N1 influenza. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, that was, of course, a very different experience than the pandemic that um, we just experienced with COVID. Um, but some of the similarities were that there were federal resources sent to the state, um, including uh, the uh, flu vaccine, um, the H1N1 flu vaccine. Mm -hmm. Uh, which we had to work with the healthcare sector and the pharmacies and various entities to distribute to the target population. So um, I, I think to some extent that helped prepare, but I, I don't know if there was anything that I could have done that would have prepared me really for the, what we faced with the uh, COVID-19 pandemic. But that background helped you. But going back to your team, you know, you mentioned you don't have a whole lot of full-time staff. What was the experience like for you as a leader leading a department, which I imagine was a department that was taxed over two to three years. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, we mentioned we have a small team, but it is a very strong team, you know, and uh, just have so much appreciation for the DEM staff that um, are just so dedicated and committed to the mission. And, uh, you know, in particular, one of the first things that I had to do when I became director in 2019 was to, to hire a deputy, right? And, uh, I hired uh, uh, Jennifer Walter as my deputy director um, back in uh, kind of middle of 2019. So really, we didn't have a whole lot of time together before the COVID-19 pandemic hit, mm -hmm. but um, I have just so much appreciation and gratitude for, for Jennifer. Um, you know, she was kind of my rock throughout this whole uh, pandemic and, you know, just throughout my tenure as the director, really, I really think she's one of the best minds in emergency management anywhere. And so just really grateful to have her. You know, I kind of joke that she's my right hand, my left hand, and maybe my brain too. And you know, <laughs> if I have the legs to carry her around, that'd be good enough for me, so. That's your brain, your left hand, your right hand. I want to get to kind of your heart. What was this like emotionally for you, being the person the city turned to for posturing during such an unprecedented time? What did you do to kind of, I mean, I don't even know if you really, you can relieve stress at the end of the day, because it never ended. It's something that was on your mind 24 seven dealing with the pandemic. Just how did you deal with it? Yeah, the early days were definitely tough, you know, and um, uh, just very long hours. Um, and I actually um, lost about 15 pounds of body weight during the <laughs> wow. early months. I wish that and, happened uh, to me. Yeah, and I, I, people, I feel like it was the other way around. They're stuck indoors working from home with food in their cabinet. Yeah, so, you know, we were coming to the office every day and to yeah. the EOC, and we had um, uh, staff from other agencies, and we're just totally grateful to have had other uh, responders in the EO emergency operations center with us, you know, from HFD, police, uh, emergency services. And we have a small staff, but we are really able to lean on our partners mm -hmm. and partner agencies to, to help do the things that we need to do. But I think the other thing is that we were fortunate to have had just incredible leaders, um, both at the county and the state levels. And you know, spanned across two administrations for the city. And, uh, you know, first with uh, Mayor Caldwell and uh, with Mayor Blanchard now. But both incredible leaders in their own right, you know, very different styles. But looking back, you know, I've come to believe that they were both exactly who we needed at the time that they were in office, you know. And so just to have their leadership and their guidance. Um, and I always knew that 
both of them were acting in the best interest of the community and they were had a conviction of what they really felt like they needed to do. And so that made it a lot easier for me, you know, to, to uh, follow those leaders. Um, in addition, we had great leaders in Governor Ige and Lieutenant Governor Green, who's now the governor. And uh, just getting to work with these incredible leaders uh, was, was just, I think that's how we kind of all stayed grounded to, to what we needed to do. So have you gained the 15 pounds back? I have and then some. <laughs> <laughs> you know, here a line we heard often during the pandemic, um, you know, as we were dealing with fear and some with frustration with the rules changing so often, and then eventually kind of pandemic fatigue, the line we heard often was, well, you know, there's no playbook. The leaders didn't know how to, to kind of handle a pandemic. But now that we've gotten through it, is there a pandemic playbook or, or at least like a binder with some operating procedures or best practices for the next time we deal with something like yeah, this? Yeah, and then we definitely have lessons learned from the event. And, you know, we always lean on our emergency operations plan, which we try to keep on an all hazards basis. So that means that uh, regardless of what the emergency is, you know, we uh, lean on common structures and processes in order to get through the emergency. So um, that there's a lot of unique elements. You know, I mentioned the H1N1 pandemic earlier, and this was, COVID was so different from that, you know. And uh, I, I think what really my takeaway has been for me is, uh, we always have said that emergency management takes the whole community, and this really emphasized that idea that it takes the whole community. It really wasn't just about government, but it took all of us. You know, it took businesses, it took nonprofits, and uh, I mentioned earlier some of the uh, the relationships that we established with nonprofits. Um, I think we really have been able to build on those, you know, particularly with the food bank. Mm -hmm. um, and we also had a chance to work with the uh, community health centers on Oahu to provide uh, uh, COVID testing and other services. And so I think what we're coming out of this is a, a stronger community in which you have stronger relationships and more awareness of what some of the additional vulnerabilities in the communities it might be. You know, we really experienced earlier on in the pandemic, a sort of a disproportionate impact to the Pacific Islander community right. with COVID. And so just having the, the partners um, who represent that population and work with the Pacific Islanders on a regular basis, it really helps us to reach those who truly need the help during an emergency. So, uh, but you know, of course the, uh, the long hours and just the, the weight of the whole thing was, was challenging, but I think that's when you look to your colleagues and, um, and support each other. So glad to have gotten through that. Um, and it was really, uh, a rewarding time in working with some of the departments that I hadn't really spent as much time with. Um, so for instance, um, anytime we're talking about creating new rules, you know, it required uh, the city attorneys to, to be there to kind of turn this into um, rules. Okay, what is that? Uh, so right now what we're hearing in the background <laughs> is um, the, the, the Hawaii Alert and Warning System, or HAWAS. Um, there's a daily test that happens. Uh, okay, I'm going to let this so. keep going because, you know, this is local government. Yeah. We don't have a podcast studio where we do these. <laughs> we hear from the city leaders and we take all of our equipment. Like Hiro said, we're in the emergency operations center. And so we're going to let this play out and we'll yeah. pick up when it's done. Yeah, so, so what's happening, it's a roll call of all the uh, the, the county emergency operations centers and county warning points. Okay. Um, uh, as well as the uh, the weather service and the Pacific Tsunami Warning Center. Right. You know, in news, when you're out doing a live shot, you always kind of like an active live shot, right? To show people where you are, to show what yeah. it looks like. Uh, this is the active live shot for this podcast. 
and, and I'm glad that roll call went without a hitch and everybody answered. So. Yes. <laughs> Um, something else I wanted to ask you about, you know, you talked about those long hours during the pandemic and that doesn't end on blue sky days for you. I just what comes to mind for me is the recent uh, mayor's town hall tour where each week you were out till I'm sure there's some nights where you didn't get home till 11 o'clock at night because we were out in some of the communities across Oahu. But one of the issues that did come out um, in multiple meetings was a resilience hub for those um, in Haula or the North Shore where these shelters aren't, you know, are scarce. Is, is there an update on a resilience hub or some kind of shelter for those on the North Shore that, that don't have one. Yeah, so when we're talking about um, uh, shelters, you know, there's there's different types of shelters mm-hmm. that we have, and some of them uh, can be used during uh, flooding events or you know, uh, depending on the type of event. Right. right? So um, what we lack on the North Shore is a hurricane evacuation shelter. Mm-hmm. Um, we were using uh, Wailua High School and Intermediate as one of our facilities, but after doing an assessment, um, the engineers recommended that we not use that facility. So um, right now that facility is uh, our top priority. Um, that's the largest gap we have in terms of geographic coverage for hurricane evacuation shelters is, is in the North Shore area. So um, we are working with the state. Um, so w- what we do for hurricane evacuation shelters, you know, these are largely uh, State Department of Education buildings. Uh, that can be used with some level of risk as uh, a shelter during hurricanes. And what's uh, become clear to us is that the um, vast majority of these facilities were not designed for, nor have them been retrofitted for, uh, withstanding hurricane force winds. So what we ended up having to do was to go back out and assess these facilities. And um, part of the barrier was these engineering assessments are very uh, time-consuming and also expensive. Um, it was to the tune of uh, $20,000 per building to do an wow. assessment. And so when you look at a school facility, right, it's multiple buildings, so it could cost, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars just to assess one school. And so what we did was um, uh, took a methodology that was developed uh, by FEMA for certain communities uh, and adapted it to the local conditions. So we hired some engineers and consultants to create a new method for us, and we called it the Best Available Refuge Area Assessment, or BARA Assessment. And so what that does is it doesn't necessarily, you know, certify a building as a hurricane proof or whatnot, but what it does is helps us identify the buildings that are most likely to survive a hurricane event and acknowledging that there is some level of risk with it, um, that they still serve as a better option than for many of the folks who live in uh, single wall construction homes or they live in coastal areas that are subject to storm surge inundation or you know flood prone areas. And uh, what we've seen is that water is really what hurts people and kills people during tropical cyclones. So these facilities that we provide um, are all out of uh, flood areas and storm surge impact areas and have some level of uh, protection against wind damage. So. Um, we uh, provide these as public options for folks to evacuate to. Uh, now, there's really not that many buildings that yeah. we have th- um, that uh, are suitable for this purpose. So island-wide, right now, we have 38 uh, facilities that we've identified as potential hurricane uh, refuge areas. And I'll use the term refuge area and shelter kind of interchangeably here. Mm-hmm. But um, shelter has actually a kind of a specific engineering and architectural definition that mm-hmm. our facilities don't meet. So we really shouldn't be calling them shelters because they don't meet the technical criteria. So um, so that's why we use the term uh, refuge area. Uh, there are 
some areas that um, have gaps, um, like we mentioned North Shore. I'm much more comfortable taking that facility off the list and not having folks evacuate to it. Now knowing that those are not really safe options to use, right? So those folks are gonna have to drive a little bit further. So the closest from the North Shore from Haleiwa, for instance, um, right now like, likely be on Wahiwa or Mililani. Um, so I think um, when we talk about evacuation for hurricanes, on the mainland, we're talking about evacuating to another jurisdiction, right? So, you know, I mentioned earlier, I was in New Orleans for Hurricane Katrina and I evacuated to Houston. And that was like a, you know, I think it took me like 10 hours to get there because of traffic and other things. And so locally, you know, for us, like we don't have that option, right? We got to evacuate on island to wherever we can get to. And so it is a little bit of an inconvenience to drive from Haleiwa to Mililani, but, you know, that's, that's what we have right now. You know, it potentially presents a, a barrier for evacuation for some folks. And I know everybody likes to be closer to their homes when they evacuate so they can quickly get back. But, you know, the, the reality is that um, public safety is the number one priority and not, you know, convenience. And so while it might take a little bit longer, you know, that's, that's where we are now. So um, do, do I want to have more facilities island-wide? Yeah, absolutely. Um, but, uh, you know, there's definitely a cost associated with any kind of capital project. And when we're talking about schools, right, then we also don't want to disrupt the day-to-day -day operation of the school when the school year is in. So it kind of leaves a very narrow window of time in order for the state to go in and retrofit these buildings. So, you know, it's just um, kind of a, a snail's pace of increasing mm -hmm. the capacity for these facilities. And so, you know, there's understandably there's some frustration from some of the communities. And I think um, there's uh, been some uh, action from uh, folks in Haula um, to try to create these what they're calling resilience hubs. So um, I do want to just be clear that um, when, when we talk about resilience hubs, um, th this is something that uh, we're currently working on providing, uh, I'm putting a little bit clearer definitions to. So um, in some communities, the resilience hub doesn't actually mean a physical facility. Um, it actually, uh, for instance, on the Big Island, you know, resilience hubs uh, were operational during the um, Kilauea lava response. And these were actually more like pop-up tents where uh, services were being provided and, um, you know, people were accepting donations and things like that. So uh, it was more of a uh, kind of a social concept of, you know, where do people go to, what are the groups that are active during emergencies? You know, what where can we go to um, kind of, be of service or to receive service, and it wasn't necessarily about the physical facility. Now, uh, there is um, some physical facility kind of concepts that are out there now, um, which might include um, uh, somewhere for people to day-to-day -day, uh, blue skies to kind of receive social services, mm -hmm. access social services. Um, and after a disaster, you know, it could serve as a kind of a distribution point or, again, like another facility to uh, access uh, disaster social services in the aftermath. Um, we do want to try to keep that conversation separate from the hurricane refuge areas right. and the shelters because those can kind of conflate with each mm -hmm. other and um, sort of different types of facilities and timelines and um, um, you know, for looking at schools, right? Like we don't necessarily, like those are schools and not hubs for providing social services. So um, it's possible that those things overlap, that you have a facility that we build that um, uh, can serve as a shelter and also as a hub for uh, social services, um, but not necessarily the same thing, right? Um, so definitely uh, acknowledge the, the work by the different groups and um, trying to bring um, resilience into their communities. 
And so I think um, a lot of this is really communities taking action. And, you know, for most of the listeners out there, I think I just kind of want to bring it back a little bit more to the sort of the individual action, if I may. And so I think, you know, we're, we're dealing with risk, right? So risk, when you quantify it, it's the consequence of an event multiplied by the likelihood of it happening, right? So if you want to manage risk, you can look at both sides. How, how do you reduce the consequence of an event happening or how do you reduce the likelihood of an event happening? And so when we look at an example for natural disasters, right, um, well, what can we do about reducing the likelihood of a natural disaster from happening? Not really much yeah. at the individual level, right? Um, yes, we do have to collectively work on solving climate change and you know slowing the, the uh, rate of uh, carbon emissions and greenhouse gas, emission, gas emissions. But individually, what we can focus on is reducing vulnerabilities and reducing the consequences of natural disasters happening. So in terms of managing risk to your home, uh, we kind of do this in a couple of ways, right? So societally, we have uh, zoning and building codes, right? Mm -hmm. And uh, building codes get updated over time. Um, and, uh, uh, and sometimes in the aftermath of hurricane events happening in our community, like you know, after mm -hmm. Hurricane Eva and Hurricane Iniki, there was a stronger push to pass building codes and um, additional requirements. But we had an analysis done by a consultant in 2019, and he found that 64% uh, of single-family homes, and that's about 125,000 homes on Oahu, lack any kind of hurricane wind mitigation. That's kind of a staggering figure, right? And so. That means those are um, generally older homes that were built before the introduction of these more stringent building codes. And they lack what we call the continuous load path. So your home really ideally should be anchored down to the foundation and each floor should be connected together with clips and your roof should be uh, attached to uh, the rest of the structure using hurricane clips, right? And having that continuous load path really helps bring protection to, to your home. And so basically, 64% of homes lack that kind of protection. And we've been trying to promote, you know, the home retrofits for, for a number of years. But again, you know, it's cost of housing is so expensive here already, right? So it's just another cost that gets added on. And not we can't say for sure, but not a lot of people have actually taken those kinds mm -hmm. of actions, right? Um, we don't really have good data on that. Um, but, you know, there is something you can do about this. Um, as I mentioned, hurricane shelters are kind of scarce here, right? So to the extent possible, if you are able to shelter in place at your own, own home, that's, that's usually a better solution than going to one of these public facilities that, you know, don't offer any services. Um, but there's a, a guide from uh, the University of Hawaii Sea Grant College program uh, written by a guy named Dennis Wong that offers kind of do-it-yourself tips for home retrofits. So, you know, those that aren't afraid to put in a little sweat equity, this is something that you could do yourself to, you know, add some clips to your homes. And also thinking about uh, what you can do to protect your windows. So it's, it's about establishing a continuous load path and protecting the envelope of your home, which means protecting your windows. So once the windows bust, and you have hurricane force winds going inside your home, that's really not a good situation. It's gonna mm -hmm. lead to further damage to your home and potentially to catastrophic failure. And so there are things you can do to protect your windows too, right? But you probably don't wanna wait till the last minute when mm -hmm. a hurricane's approaching to, you know, to take measurements, 
go to Home Depot, mm -hmm. get that plywood cut, and then figure out how you're going to attach them to your windows. Mm -hmm. And if you got a second floor window, you got to get up there. So, you know, these are things that you want to do ahead of time. So, you know, pre-measure, pre-cut, and pre-drilled. So that all you got to do during a, when a storm is approaching is just take it out of storage and just put them up on your windows, right? And there's different options to do that. I mean, you know, plywood is generally the most affordable option, but it's also the most kind of, it's, it's heavy and right. it's kind of clunky and it's not, it's not for everybody. Um, there are options you can install on your uh, windows, just having shutters already installed or having these um, uh, polycarbonate window protection panels. Um, these are a lot more lightweight and they're uh, much stronger. Um, but again, kind of requires you to plan ahead of time. Mm -hmm. So, you know, there's things you can do to manage risk to your home uh, ahead of time, uh, just providing uh, additional protection to your home. And for most people, you know, your home is probably your most valuable asset too, right? So um, not only are you protecting yourself from the storm impacts, but you're protecting your most important assets. And so, you know, the other component to this is just having adequate insurance. And so if you have a mortgage, then your bank might require you to have certain types of insurance. Mm -hmm. But, you know, even if you aren't, you know, you, your home's paid off, you want to protect that asset, right? And uh, just really in terms of managing the risk and consequences of an event, that financial consequence uh, of a natural disaster could be really de devastating to a lot of folks. So, you know, to the extent possible, just look at your insurance options, um, uh, talk to an insurance agent, or talk to, um, to uh, go to the DCCA website, that's the Department of uh, uh, Commerce and Consumer Affairs. Um, they have some really good guidelines and just uh, and information on different types of insurance products that are available out there. So, you know, really um, this hurricane season, um, it's, it's still July, it's still early. Um, really urging folks to take actions to not only prepare yourself with uh, uh, making a plan, building a kit and staying informed, but really taking actions to uh, manage that risk to your home. And so also if you're not a ho homeowner, right, there's renter's insurance to mm -hmm. protect your stuff. So, you know, just that financial recovery part is going to be really crucial if we have a large scale hurricane or any other kind of disaster hit us. Well, Hiro, thank you so much for your time. Is there anything we missed? No, I think I think we covered a good bit. So no, I just really appreciate the, uh, the opportunity to be on. No, thank you. And thank you for listening. Remember, if you have a question for Hero, the mayor, or any of the departments here in the city and county of Honolulu, you can submit your podcast questions by heading to oneoahu.org slash podcast. And next week, we're back with Mayor Rick Blangiardi right here on the One Oahu podcast. Until then, aloha.